Hello and welcome back to Enterprise Linux Security, the first episode of 2023, this time episode 51. How you doing, Zhao? All good. Happy New Year, everybody, if you pay attention to that. And I hope you're enjoying your holidays. And we have a great show to, to start the year. It's actually focused around a couple of stories that happened during the holiday season. Um, it's kind of like a repeat from last year where we had Lock4J as Santa's gift. So this year we have a couple other stories like that. Yeah, and also I like to refer to the new year as year equals year plus one. That's that's how I think of the <laughs> new year in my mind. But, you know, we can have New Year's resolutions, whatever we want. And we have a main topic and we have some subtopics to talk about. Yeah, we have a couple of stories that popped up in the news that uh, caught my attention. Um, I usually don't deal too much with insurance stories. It's not in my purview to do, to deal with insurances. Even at my previous job, I wasn't ex, um, supposed to deal with the insurance, cybersecurity insurance side of things. Um, but last year, I had to write a couple of pieces around insurance and cybersecurity insurance for the TechScare blog. Um, so I started looking a bit more into the details of how it operates. Um, if you'll recall, we talked about it in, the, in this show. We talked about one clause in specific that is inside of um, cybersecurity insurances, which means that uh, acts of war will not be covered by, by cybersecurity insurance. So it's pretty tricky to, to construe who originated an attack. So the insurance company will always have an, an opening to say, okay, that was an act of war, we will not cover it. Um, and over the, the holiday period, at the end of December, there was this news around a Supreme Court from Ohio ruling that says that, <laughs> and this goes even further down the rabbit hole. Um, so they say that because there was no direct physical and direct harm caused by a cybersecurity hack, in this case, a ransomware event, then the insurer didn't have to cover the losses. That's pretty tricky. You'll never have direct physical results from a ransomware operation, except in factories and IoT and stuff like that. But regular ransomware will never cause any physical or direct harm. So this opens the door to no ransomware ever being covered by, by an insurance ever again. And that's pretty important. That's really horrible because... Um there's so many angles to talk about here. Um, it's just like, where do you begin? Now, now, one thing I will say, just to kind of lightly touch on this, um, when it comes to acts of war, it's hard to know because you could have somebody in the same country as you. It could literally be your next door neighbor, for all you know, that um, tunnels their connection through another country and then back, and then the traffic is originating from another country. But when in actuality, the person isn't actually from that country. But if that country they tunneled their connection through is um, a country that's undergoing war, unfortunately, then even though that person, there's no proof that person was actually there in that country, um, that is grounds for an insurance company if the policy is such that they will just not cover that. And now when we get to the Ohio story here, they... Like you said, we're talking about, you know, there's no direct physical damage. And the argument is, well, software isn't physical. You know, it's just ones and zeros. That's all it is. You can't damage that. I mean, even if you smash the hard drive with a hammer, that's not the software that did it. That's you, right? Um, there's Unless 
you had a firmware bug and I'm just really reaching here that overheated the CPU or something, but CPUs throttle nowadays, so you're not even gonna have that problem. So it's just another one of those situations where someone has an insurance policy that they thought would protect them, but mm -hmm. an edge case means that they just wasted every dollar they gave that company. Absolutely. So let's take this story back to the start. So in 2019, like three years ago, um, this company, um, let me see if I get the name right, Emoy Services, I hope I pronounced that correctly, um, an Ohio-based company. So they had a ransomware infection and they were asked for three bitcoins. At the time, it would amount to $35,000 according to the court papers. Um, and they decided to pay. Again, we never recommend paying, but if you have no other choice, then you have no other choice. So they went ahead, they paid the three bitcoins, and then the next day they uh, filed a claim with their insurance company for which they had a cybersecurity um, insurance in order to get back the, the money they had spent on the bitcoins and any potential damages. Um, it took, on the same day that they filed that claim, the insurance company came back and said that it was not covered. So the company, the initial company that suffered the breach was pretty annoyed and they got into court with the, the insurance company and they won the, the, the first instance, I believe. And then there was um, another uh, appeal from the insurer, which won. So they took it to the Supreme Court and um, actually I got the, the order right. The, the insurer won on the first case, there was an appeal for the Supreme Court and that appeal on the Supreme Court, which got the decision right now, upheld the initial decision. So the Supreme Court maintained the decision that the insurance company was not um, liable to pay that company that was breached because there was no direct um, damage. And that's pretty tricky. That basically invalidates every single cybersecurity insurance out there. People should really pay attention to this decision. And, and depending on where you are in the world, if you don't already know, um, when something hits the Supreme Court here in the United States, it, it's probably the same elsewhere as well. It, it creates a precedent. It, it's some, something that a lawyer can refer to. You know, this one didn't work. So I'm not taking that case because if I do, it's just going to go the same direction. And that ultimately, um, whenever it goes to the Supreme Court, the losing party, it's more than just losing. It's you, you lost plus a precedent is set that makes it harder for others so it's a bit of a gamble on top of it yeah but the, the risk here is massive insurance companies have been promoting uh, cybersecurity insurance specifically for cases like this and again unless you have equipment that's connected to i don't know robots or some type of construction machinery or something like that that does get broken down in case the the computer goes down then you will never have physical direct damage resulting from this you might have business loss you might have revenue loss you might have all of those things but direct physical damage, direct physical harm, maybe in healthcare. And we've had that in the past. There have actually been deaths because of ransomware infections and people not being able to, to receive care in time. But for the majority of the situations, you will never have um, a claim here. So you're basically paying for your cybersecurity insurance and you will never see anything coming out of it. I encourage everyone to thoroughly research insurance companies and if you already have an insurance company, give them a call, let them know, hypothetically, nothing happened. I just want to understand my policy. Make sure you say that. You don't want to make them think that you had an incident and that it's a claim when it's not. Just 
you know, hypothetically, if this were to happen in another universe or whatever, would this be covered, this scenario? And you really have to understand that because insurance companies, like I, I like to think the best of everything by default, but don't think the best of insurance companies by default. Ask questions, have a lawyer look at the policy, thoroughly understand it. Um, but like you're saying, this situation even then still makes it uh, a bit of a challenge, unfortunately. And insurance companies, you know, that's unfortunately very common that they obviously don't make money by giving money away. But you also, the point is you want you want to be covered if something happens. But, you know, in my case, and I know this isn't IT related, so I'll keep this short. I had a garage collapse and the renter's insurance didn't cover it. But they did let me know that if it was damaged by lava, it would have been covered. But let the record indicate there's no such thing as lava flows externally here in Michigan in the United States. We don't have a volcano, but it's nice to know that if a volcano materialized, that that would have covered the damage. So you, you, these, it's yeah. just so strange, you know? When, when I was doing the research on how insurers and cybersecurity um, insurance works, I went a bit down the rabbit hole. I wasn't aware of this before. I never paid too much attention to how insurance companies work. But you have this layer of very small insurers, the ones that you contract with. And then there are these very big conglomerates that actually provide them with the infrastructure and the services to the smaller ones. And in order to join one of the big ones, you have to comply with the, the rules that they want and the clauses that they want to include in the contracts. And for example, that act of war, that was forced from the bottom down. So the ones at the top forced all of their contracted insurance companies to include that in every single contract. Um, so it might not even be the fault of your insurer, but you will still be hit by this type of, uh, of rule. Yeah, and, and I don't, I'm not going to call out any insurance company in particular because I think it depends on the situation and and everything, what you're paying for. There's different levels in the policy and whatnot, but... Um, it stands to reason. Um, don't don't assume anything with insurance. Just ask. Have a lawyer look at it um, thoroughly. Look at your policy. Understand it. I'm not saying you won't still have a problem because things happen. But at the very least, you you've done your due diligence in understanding what is going to be covered. Yeah. So we cover the first Grinch story of the, of the episode. The first Grinch story. I like that. Let's go to the next one. And the next one is also holiday-themed related. Um, as you all know, I'm not in the U.S., but we get U.S. news here in Portugal. So we know about how Southwestern Airlines had a really bad holiday season and how there was a total meltdown last week and they had lots of uh, grounded flights and all of that. And... One of the interesting things that came out of that story was that it wasn't just because the weather that caused the situation. You guys had awful weather during the, the holiday season, lots of snow and all of that, lots of flights grounded because of it. But it turns out that, um, and I'll explain why it touches on security in a minute. It turns out that um, the systems that airline that Southwestern Airlines relies on were not able to cope with the scheduling processing that had to take place due to having all of their ground crews and all of their cabin crews and their pilots grounded for a few days and then rescheduling them on the, the flights that had to go back up again. So their systems could not cope with the load. So they started doing that scheduling operation manually. So in the middle of that manual operation, 
you would have things happen, say for example the weather would get worse at an airport and the flights going there would have to be cancelled. So it basically would invalidate hours of work for the people doing that manually. But the weird thing is that their IT systems were not able to cope with the load of rescheduling all of that again. Now, uh, the algorithm to cover that, it's a variation of the traveling salesman. Uh, I won't go into details, but it's very computationally intensive. <clears throat> and um, the thing is, and this is why it touches on security. Security is not just about protecting your systems from external attacks and exploits and vulnerabilities and all of that. It's also ensuring that your systems are able to do what they're supposed to be doing. If not, then you're causing disruption. And if you're causing disruption, you're affecting your business and that affects security. So by having their systems not able to cope with the load of something like this, then Southwestern lacks in the security aspect of things as well. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, um, you, you can draw a line between those, but you should not because like you said, causes disruption and that's going to have a business impact. And that's exactly what you should avoid as an administrator as much as you possibly can. Um, I don't know anything about how their systems are set up. I, I don't work for them or anything. They've never been a client for any company I've worked for. But um I don't know if they have auto scaling or something like that set up um, and maybe the you know metrics weren't correct or something or if they have to manually spin up servers when there's load, I have no idea. But these are definitely things to understand before it becomes a problem is how things are gonna scale. Or even if they have stuff running on the cloud at all, it might just be local stuff, not being able to, to cope with the increased load of having to reschedule all the flights and all the crews and all the people that work for them. Um, the, this type of problem, these NP-hard problems, this is the name that you give problems that are potentially computationally unsolvable. So you have to find clever um, algorithms that go around the problem and find optimal solutions even when it's really tricky to find them. But the, the thing is, um, when you increase the, the search space, the, the computation and load will increase exponentially. I don't want to, to say that because I don't know if that's the exact case, but it will get really, really tricky to do. And having to, to reschedule everything is the absolute worst case situation here. If you only have local ser servers and don't rely on anything that can scale automatically, for example, then the servers that you have will have to do it. And apparently, Southwestern has had a pretty bad record of having their systems upgraded and all of that over the years. Um, the unions that work for them, they have been complaining about outdated systems and how it doesn't work properly and all of that. And this is just that to the absolute maximum level possible. Everything grounded and now you don't fly at all. So, yeah. And I also want to mention, yeah, I also want to mention too that, you know, for all I know, um, there could be an administrator that understands everything that we're talking about and wanted to set this up the way that, you know, we mentioned maybe auto scaling or whatever, and whatever the case might be. And maybe it was hard to get management on board. That does happen. Sometimes, you know, I, I mentioned the administrator. It's not always their fault because I think there's always a situation often and at least somewhere at some point where someone wants to do the right thing. They know what the right thing is to do, but they like sometimes getting management buy-in is really hard to do. And when you have outdated systems and people complain about it, that to me personally, in my opinion, is a red flag for um, things need to be fixed. And often administrators know what needs to be fixed. They know where the pain points are. 
but it's just not that easy to get buy-in for it. And uh, for all I know, it could be an issue there too. Yeah. And then there's the other thing, and it also touches on security as well, as I said before. Um, if you're not getting your systems upgraded on time, you probably are not having the, the right budget for security either because the budget for IT tends to be more or less for everything. It should cover everything. You're not covering upgrades and upgrades are pretty basic. You probably are not covering security properly either. Um, this isn't even the first time that Southwestern is hit by something like this. In last April, they had um, a planned maintenance operation go bad and their systems were down for longer than expected. So they also had to cancel a lot of flights at the time, April 2nd, I believe. Um, so yeah, they now have a track record of pretty bad decisions being taken. Um, I hope they, they've managed to, to fix it by now. And by the time you listen to the podcast, I really hope so. Um, but lots of people were affected by this. And yeah, they really need to upgrade. Yeah, and, be, and actually witnessing uh, failed migrations or upgrades or whatnot, um, the, the stress level's high. So, you know, kudos to the administrators out there that, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with that. I understand it's stressful. Um, but yeah, um, Southwestern, Southwestern really needs to up their game. Um, I know that they weren't the only airline company hit by this, but they for sure were the ones that took the longest to recover. Sometimes I feel like there's always a possibility of it becoming a kick me sign, you know, when a company <laughs> has problems and then, you know, threat actors might want to get into a system because they have a specific purpose for it. But it can get to a point where you become a running joke and people might, oh, let's go after Southwest again. That was fun. Uh, they're in the news. Let's even get them in the news again. And, and please, nobody listening to this be that person. We, we are not absolutely not saying that's a good thing. And I, I only laugh because of frustration, not because it's actually a good thing. It's not. But I, I do think that there could be a, um, a case to be made that if you do have systems trouble and it does make the news, you should probably not only fix what made the news, but also just keep a closer eye on things for a while because there's probably additional people poking around at your systems at that point. Good point there. Okay, and that was yet another Grinch story. <laughs> We're on a roll here, so let's do three for three. Um, our main story for today... Main topic. Yeah, our main story is about um, <laughs> Colonel Bloat, to, to say it nicely. Um, there was an... If you guys remember last year around the holiday season, we had Lock4J and we had lots of IT teams that were supposed to be on holidays do extra pull out extra hours and uh, do extra work and meetings and all of that, and it was pretty nasty. So this time around, we had the vulnerability in KSMBD, which is a really weird name to say Samba in the kernel, which is a subsystem that got added to the Linux kernel last year, no, two years ago, in 2021, which basically adds uh, Samba-like functionality, part of Samba at least, uh, the, the part about file sharing and accessing uh, SMB protocol and all of that, directly into the kernel. And now it turns out it has a 10 out of 10 CVSS scored vulnerability, which is basically the nastiest that you can have. And it happened during the holidays again, and you have to patch if you're on running one of the affected systems, and one of the affected systems is Ubuntu 20.04. So how's that for a, a nice Christmas surprise there? 
It, it's a, uh, yeah, it, it, there's so many things to unpack. I mean, even as we talked about this before we hit the record button, there's just so many different angles. And, um, you know, it comes to a point where I, I mean, I actually, I'll start here. I agree with the comments that um, the story reports on having been made around the time where this was inserted into the kernel, that having something like this in kernel space is not a good idea. Um, and, and for people that don't know, I mean, kernel space built into the kernel, user space, you know, user needs it, user, you know, inserts it, runs a service or whatever it is. Not everyone is going to, to need Samba support. support. Uh, some companies use it, some companies don't. And like the article mentions, it's very popular. You know, Mac OS uses it, Linux uses it, um, in Windows as well. So everything uses it. And when something's built into the kernel and compiled into the kernel, it's there, it's, it's available. And even if you have no plans on using Samba, because for whatever reason, it's just not something that you need. If you have one a kernel with this in there, you have it in support for it in the kernel, whether you need it or not. And that's just not a good idea because things like this can definitely happen. It, allow, it allows an unauthenticated user kernel level access to the server. What it means to be in the kernel, it means that the code will run with kernel-like privileges. So that's the most privileges you can get on a system. So when something breaks there and it turns out to be exploitable, whoever manages to exploit it and run something of their own control or something that they pass it or something like that, then it will run as well with those privileges. That's pretty bad. In this specific case, a remote user can get full server control through it. Um, that's about the, <laughs> the nightmare situation that you need right before Christmas. I know that's a movie, but in this case, it's pretty accurate. Um, so the vulnerability itself, it, it made the news because Ubuntu brings this configured in by default. Um, Red Hat, for example, <laughs> Red Hat came out with a pretty nice burn and I'll read this. So Red Hat Enterprise Linux takes a conservative approach to, include it, to including untested code in released products. New features are only included once considered stable and tested and this new functionality has not yet met this requirement. If I was working at Canonical, I would still be feeling the burn from this comment by Red Hat. Um, so, yeah. I think another thing about this too, um, and I don't know how many people re actually remember this, depending on when you started, because this was some time ago, but Samba has a history of being a problem. Maybe not as much as like Java had for a while, because I remember some time ago, everybody was making fun of Java because there's a like, an, like vulnerability after vulnerability after vulnerability. But Samba at one point, um, you know, in, in Windows XP made everyone's C drive publicly browsable on the internet before they in, um, added the firewall to Windows XP, which I think was Service Pack 2, which obviously that's not a Linux thing, but it's an industry thing. We, you know, it's not actually in that case, it's not a vulnerability in Samba. It's just the fact that it was um, integrated in a way that was not a good idea. Similar to this, not a good idea, but we have precedent set that we need to be careful of these kinds of things. But um, it's like, yeah, let's just put it in the kernel. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. Everybody has a really compelling reason for why their own subsystem should be included in the kernel. The main reason will always be performance. I mean, code that is running straight inside of the kernel will have less hoops to jump through when it tries to call other functionality in the kernel. It will probably have direct access to hardware level stuff. So the, the, the idea is that by running inside of the kernel, you avoid 
making external calls and running through authentication and through all of that that adds delay to your call. So your code will probably appear as if it's running faster. And you'll yeah. get better throughput and all of that. And everybody has a great compelling story around it. But the thing is, when it gets added to the kernel, distributions will pick it up. In this case, Canonical picked this up. So yeah, the, the main issue here is that when you have something like this added to the kernel, it's there for the distributions to pick up. When the distributions pick it up and consider it to be default configuration, the kernel will come with that baked in and whoever is relying on that kernel will inherently have it enabled as well. We were discussing this before we, we started recording. When you're at home and you're trying new kernel features and you're compiling the kernel yourself, it's all fun and games and nobody gets hurt if something breaks. But the mindset on the enterprise side of things cannot be the same and is not the same. On the, the enterprise side of things, you want stability, you want the performance, obviously, but mostly you want stability and availability. So you don't want stuff breaking, you don't want stuff to be vulnerable. But you also want to be as close to the defaults as possible. Um, what this means is that you don't want to be cherry-picking um, kernel options for each of your systems. You probably want a single image that you can deploy to as many machines as possible. Um, that facilitates um, automation, that facilitates deployment, that facilitates monitoring, that facilitates a lot of things. So that's the, usually the default route that you go through on the, on the enterprise side. That's why you stay with the default options that come with the specific distribution. So the de decisions like this one from Canonical of including the KSMBD enabled by default will impact everybody running Ubuntu on that specific version. And this is why this type of um, decision is really tricky. I almost wonder if uh, Snap Packages use it or something, if there's a, some kind of uh, situation why they made that decision. But I have no idea because I, um, I agree. Regardless of what the why is here, uh, I don't feel that this belongs in kernel space at all. It should be something in user space. I understand, like you said, things might run slower. But I think it's better to have things run a bit slower than give somebody a free invitation to just do whatever the heck they want in the kernel. Especially when there's the user space alternatives. Uh, Samba is perfectly capable. It has been perfectly capable for decades now. Um, you had Samba available and you still had this being added to the kernel. It's backed by Samsung. It was made, created mainly by a Samsung team. It had some other contributions, but it was mainly spearheaded by, by Samsung. So they have they pulled some wave. They probably have the numbers to to show for them that they need this. And again, compelling story. Everybody has one. But through the years, the kernel has been receiving some subsystems that have been the source of lots and lots of issues. Having Samba-like functionality directly in the kernel is just another example. One that I usually go to, the, the Berkeley packet filter. The, the original intention was to provide a way to create a programmable firewall to a user directly into the kernel. Over the years, it has been abused to load any type of code, basically, and being run with uh, kernel-like privileges. It has been the source of vulnerabilities, really bad ones over the last two, three years now. I keep mentioning it because every time there's a vulnerability on BPF, the Berkeley packet filter, you know it's going to be bad. It's just how it happens. And this one, the KSMBD thing, I could almost bet that uh, the next vulnerability to hit it, it's also going to be pretty bad. It's 
through no fault of the coders, it's 30,000 lines of code. I think the original kernel, when it was created by Linus, was not as big as the, the commit that added the subsystem. Wow. Um, this is just to give you an idea of the scope. It's impossible to catch all the bugs. Nobody will be able to. So we'll be facing new vulnerabilities emerging from this code throughout the years. Because the thing is, once it's in the kernel, it's pretty tricky to remove it from the kernel. And right. now it's there. Right. It's there. So for, for people that don't know, I mean, when you, you know, those of you that have not com, uh, custom compiled a kernel, you can choose to have a module baked in to the kernel. If you go through the config, you could totally do that. And some things have to be uh, baked in. Like for example, as we were discussing off camera, booting the system, you have whatever the file system is of the boot partition, that file system has to be supported. Um, now, of course, more technically, there's way around, ways around that I'm not gonna get into, um, but, when you have a, or, or actually, let me. Um, the other point was uh, modules are just as needed. You can insert a module as you need it if it doesn't have to be there. You could, but if you want it, you can add it. But what I don't understand, you know, you have Samsung. They make a lot of different products. You know, televisions. You know, they have uh, smartphones, obviously, which are based on Android, which are quite popular. So I can understand that there could be a need there. What I don't understand then is why is the mentality not let's just compile our kernel internally, which they're already doing, and make sure that this is in every single thing. And if they're doing it the way that everyone else does it, they'll have that config file for the kernel when they build it that they just drop in there and it's got all the settings. They don't have to like go in and set it every single time. Um, I wouldn't think that for a company that makes hardware, that'd be an inconvenience. I can understand having it built in is always there. It's maybe one less thing to check on the box. Maybe it'll benefit performance, but I just don't understand why it's not like Samsung making sure on their devices that it's present because they need it for their purposes. Making it default in the kernel affects everybody, whether they need it or not. And that to me is reaching outside of Samsung's realm because now they're forcing a change for everybody. Even you know, despite whether or not they're using it internally isn't really a problem for me. They could use whatever they want internally. It's their decision, but they're making a decision for everybody by trying to pitch this as being a default part of the kernel. And that's the part that I just don't really understand. The argument there might probably have been, okay, we have this great piece of code. We are sharing it with the world. And the best way to do that is to include it in the kernel so that everybody can benefit. They also benefit. Open source mentality, people will spot bugs, will report the bugs, will make improvements, will obviously come try to commit the improvements and they will benefit from those improvements as well. That's all fine and dandy. Everybody has a compelling story. Um, if you are working on a new module, a new file system, the kernel already has dozens of file systems, but yours is the best in the world. You have this amazing new throughput, you save SSD lifetime, whatever you do, you have this great story. So you submit this to the kernel for inclusion. The, the process here, it will be some back and forth. People will make ask questions. They will want to see the code. They will make suggestions to the code. You can't have this. You should have it this way and all that. After a few months, it will get added. It gets added to under, under testing, which is a, um, if you compile the code, lots of options are hidden under testing. So that's the stuff that's obviously being tested, as the name implies. Um, and after some time, it moves out of testing. It gets into the main options tree, and it's all there. So if you want to use it, great. Yeah, I totally agree with um, that. Yeah, I, I was going to say, though, too, like, th that's a good point. I mean, it could just be goodwill. Hey, I got this thing and, and people could benefit from the thing. 
But I, I still think an argument can be made for whether or not something should be the default. Putting it in the kernel, making it, you know, the code, when I say kernel, I, I'm talking about the code, and making it an optional thing that people can just check the box if they want it, um, or distributions could check the box if they want it. That could even be what happened. I don't actually know if it was a, um, I, I, you mentioned default, but it could be in, being in the kernel is fine, but being default is like, a, in my opinion, another level higher, because if it's default, and people accept the defaults or a distribution accepts the defaults, then everyone has it. But being in the kernel, used or not, it could be in the kernel, but default is like another level. <laughs> There's this XKCD, XKCD comic about standards, where one of the figures is talking to the other, oh, I can't believe there are 14 competing standards to do this weird thing. Yep. And the other one, oh, 14 standards, that's impossible. Okay, and the first one, okay, I'll create the best one that includes all the options from these 14 ones, and that's the one that everybody's going to need. At the end of the story, there are now 15 competing standards to do that same thing. And the kernel is a prime example of this. We have dozens of file systems, we have dozens of protocols, we have lots of schedulers, we have lots of memory management options, we have lots of debugging tools, some of which don't work with others of those debugging tools. Um, there are lots and lots of things that are redundant in the kernel. And again, there are, there are compelling reasons for every single one of them to be there. But at some point, because things have evolved a lot over the past two decades, specifically in security, adding more code means you're adding more vulnerabilities. That's just how things are. Um, the only one that basically the gatekeeper here, there are other people in kernel leadership, but it's Linus that gets the final word. Um, I don't know. I feel like at some point you have to, to tighten up the, the rules and you have to be more strict about what you let in, specifically in situations like the KSMBD one, where there is a user space alternative that's proven and tested and has been shown to work, even if it has had lots of vulnerabilities in the past. It has been shown to work properly for years now. Um, maybe those shouldn't be accepted so easily. I, I completely agree with that. And another, as an aside, I, I imagine it's still the case now. I haven't uh, custom compiled a kernel in a very long time, but um, you know, I used to do it for fun because I had nothing else to do. Um, but when I remember looking at it, um, even you know, back when I was looking at it, and there were um, video card drivers in the kernel that haven't been sold for like over 15 years at that at the last time I looked at it and they're even older now but and they're probably still there for all I know and we even had at one point I forgot what year this was a bug in the floppy driver for um, I believe it was QEMU if I'm not mistaken um, so we have these old things in the kernel that stick around because you know somebody might have that video card still in use today and they would very much appreciate that monitor still working uh, when they plug in a, a display but at the end of the day I really do think we need to take a look at um, what, what's in the kernel? Is it necessary? Can it be moved to a, an optional module and not default compiled in? Um, that would actually lower the, the file size, obviously to a point, right? We can't just decommission every video card that has, a, has five years ago, right? But within reason, if something's like 20, 30 years old or something, um, you know, put it in a legacy module or something that people could load in if they need it, and let's not make it a default. But here we have a situation where I guess it seemed like a good idea at the time. Let's put it in the kernel. What's the worst that could happen? I wasn't even referring to drivers specifically. I mean, drivers um, drive adoption, and that's great. You want to be able to experience your hardware as soon as you plug in the, as you drop in Linux, and it should work. It should pick up the hardware. 
I'm fine with drivers. I'm more interested in controlling the, the growth of subsystems, subsystems specifically, stuff like new networking protocols being added, new communication stuff like KSMBD. Um, <laughs> again, going back, file systems. How many file systems do you actually need? Do you need... 30 file, different file systems, 40, 50, 60. Sure, there's a use case for every single one of them. That's why it was included in the first place. Somebody at some point had a great need for it, so much so that it went through the hassle of having it added to the, the, the kernel. But right. do you really need so many right now? Do you need to add new ones every single year or every single month or something like that? Yeah. Uh, at some point, you should draw the line. And... The later you draw the line, the more bugs get into the kernel as well. Working at TechScare, looking at the, the growth of vulnerabilities has opened my eyes to a new set of worries. In this case, the growing number of bugs in the code that exist in stuff like the kernel. Having more code means you have more bugs. It's just how it is. You will never be able to catch them all. The, the kernel is just too big of a master to, to actually go through and then analyze properly. Nobody, not even the kernel leadership, can has a holistic view of the kernel as it is right now. There's just too much code in it. Um, and we keep on adding more and more and more. And at some point, we really, really need to draw the line. I 100% I agree. I think it's way over the line and it's been over the line for a long time. Um, I think the most egregious part of this is that we have technologies to manage this better. It's... I'm not going to say it's the easiest problem to solve because that would be, you know, over-exaggerating this, but we have the technologies to find another way. And like you said, it could just be not a technology thing and just a list of requirements. You know, these are the things that are required for a module to be in, in the kernel and it has to meet these requirements and more stringent requirements are not a bad thing. So, but, I mean, but we have different ways of dealing with this. I, I remember... Um, and I mentioned this before we started recording, where I set up an, an eight terabyte NVMe, which is insane, right? But um, I decided to go with XFS, not supported on the, the distribution that I was using. So I installed the XFS progs package, and that gave me support for XFS. I wasn't really taken aback by not having that before because I wasn't using it. But the minute I needed to use it, I install what I need to install and get it going. And when it comes to Samba, if you were to look at pretty much any how-to out there. If you just Google uh, how to set up a Samba server and client, what you're going to see is something like, um, I don't remember if this is the exact package name, but something like apt install um, SMB client, Samba client, something like that. You, you decide you needed this thing. You're going in the tutorials and how-tos, including things that I've done, will walk you through installing that. You install that, the client on the client system, the server package on the server system, and you get the SMB config file set up, and then you have a Samba server and, and your systems can access it. Um, and, and to be honest, I didn't even know it was in the kernel until this happened because the tried and true approach, install the packages that you need for the server and for the client, you're done. You have it set up, you're good to go. And that's the generally agreed upon way to do it if you search this up. But apparently it's been in the kernel and I just didn't even know it. And it turns out that lack of adoption is probably why not many people were too worried about the 10 out of 10 vulnerability. Um, right. I mean, this is a perfect score. You can't go any higher, any higher risk, any higher danger than this. And still you didn't see a scramble like Log4J. And you didn't see it because it isn't so widely used. Um, Canonical has it. Canonical has it by default. I don't know if... Uh, 
if distributions like Mint, for example, take the same options that uh, Ubuntu uses, or they comment it out. But um, this will trickle down to other distributions as well. Um, again, I really liked Red Hat's response to this. That comment about not using untested code, that was a major burn against Canonical, but still they were right on the point. They're not using untested code. This has been accepted in the code, in the in the kernel, sorry. Um, it has been there for over a year now. It was uh, August 2021 that was added to the kernel. But still, Red Hat considers it untested. And it's untested because of lack of adoption, and it's lack of adoption because there's Samba, and people are used to Samba, as you said. And again, the user space alternative is being so widely used that it completely nullifies any reasoning that you might come up with to have this directly in the kernel. And for other subsystems, it's exactly the same thing. Whenever there's a user space alternative, it should not go into the kernel, even if performance is the reason. I completely agree, and I also agree with Red Hat's response. I mean, we just need to take a moment to really appreciate this because, you know, I always argue in the Linux community with uh, software vendors that they're not always doing a good job when it comes to communication, but I don't often, you know, compliment a company that does it right. Um, it was probably the most professional, polite, and nice way to provide a backhanded com comment to Canonical, um, where you know you read it. Oh yeah, that makes sense. That's a that's a good decision by them. But you you read it, you know, more thoroughly. Oh yeah, that that was a very professional and polite backhanded comment to people that don't do it that way. But good on Red Hat for being conservative in that in that way. I mean, considering their focus on enterprise Linux, it totally makes sense. But I think it um, is a great example. If there's not a good enough use case or, or not a good enough reason for this to exist in the kernel, maybe it shouldn't be there. Just saying. Yeah, absolutely. And like we started, this was the third Grinch story of the day. Um, I think we can wrap it up about now. We covered all three stories. Um, I hope you found it as delightful as us and not depressing. Uh, but then again, this is the type of stories that we always cover. We will always have stories like this to cover, unfortunately. So stick around. We promise the next one won't be as depressing. Um, we might yeah. be lying. <laughs> Yeah, the threat surface out there is frightful, but patching your systems is so delightful. I'm here all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, there we Thanks, go. Everybody. I think we covered it. Thank, and you for, thank you, everybody, for listening. It, again, it was a pleasure, Jay, and until the next one. Yep. See you next week. <laughs>